Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud. Now on to today's show. Welcome, I'm Mark Petruzzi, and welcome to our next episode of Selling the Cloud. Today, we are very fortunate to have my good friend, co-author, Paul Melchiori, with the book right there. So, Paul, I'll hand it right to you for a quick background. You can tell us a little bit about what brings you to this point in your life, being on Selling the Cloud. Great. Hey, thank you, Mark and Ray. Glad to be here and excited to, to participate with your audience. You know, I've been involved in enterprise selling for over three decades now, so it's been a long time. And, you know, I was fortunate enough here in Philadelphia to be in the right place at the right time when SAP decided to come to the U.S. So I was one of the first employees there back in the late 80s, early 90s, and was able to see really a startup here in the U.S. grow to a small country, I guess SAP is now. And so that was a great run and being able to be involved in that high growth environment, selling to the world's largest enterprises, very complex piece of software and working with partners like Deloitte and Accenture and others. And I think that's where we met Mark many years ago. And then was able to take a big risk, do my first tour of duty in Silicon Valley by joining Ariba. You know, my title there was Vice President of North American Operations which sounds like a pretty boring title, but it really was a prelude to what the CRO is today, where I had all the basically front-end operations of Ariba, and you know that included service delivery, the 800 number support, all the partner ecosystem, product marketing, all those things that really were consistent with the whole front end of the business in essence. So it was a great opportunity. You know, the Ariba story is pretty public. We went public in, I guess it was April, May, June timeframe of 99. And by 2001, the market crashed terribly. So it was a very interesting roller coaster ride going from pre-revenue to 3,800 people and then down to like seven or 800. But we wound up selling SAP in 2012. I did a you know a nice stint at iPipeline here locally in Philly. They're an insurance SaaS software company. I had the president title there. And then in 2016, went to Plan. It was a great opportunity. Uh, I was CRO, the first CRO they brought in. And then within three or four months, the CEO was gone. And so I was interim CEO for a little over a year. And then we went public in 2018, doing very well today and left there in 2019 to do private equity. And I can assure you, it's a lot easier working private equity than being a CRO. So I'm glad to be on this side of the fence for sure. Yeah, well, Paul, what we'd love to dive deeper on, I'm glad you mentioned a little bit of the CRO role and product marketing. For today's episode, we really want to go deep with you on the reasons why a CRO would want to push for that president and CRO title, but more importantly, the responsibility of having sales, service, customer success, product marketing for sure as part of the overall structure. So Ray, let me hand to you for our first question. So Paul, one of the things I'd like to ask you is when you think about this evolving role of a chief revenue officer... How do you define the core responsibilities that our CRO should have? Yeah, Ray, and I think, you know, let me just say that, and this is not scientific, I haven't done a study, but doing this a long time, and I know a lot of these folks, and I always ask them the first question is, well, what do you have? 
other than sales. And then a lot of times they're silenced because they have nothing else other than sales. But they're called chief revenue officers because it's a title. So I'd say in 50% of the time, it's a title only, and it's really just a VP of sales. And I think in some situations, that's fine. They don't need a CRO. They just want to give the title. But a majority of the people that are in CRO roles now really don't have the responsibilities like that Mark just mentioned, you know, customer success. Why would that not roll into a CRO, especially where a lot of companies, I know at Anaplan, 50% of our revenue came from existing customers. So you need to have customer success. You need to have delivery because you're not delivering the product. Customers aren't happy. They're not going to buy more. I think, you know, the other areas that are kind of fringe areas are the partnerships and ecosystems. A lot of times that's a whole separate group because partnerships could be revenue generating partnerships or they could be delivery partnerships. So if I don't have delivery, I might only have half the partnership ecosystem. doesn't make sense. And then I think the product marketing thing for me is really a deal breaker. And the reason being is that in today's world, the way that the products are evolving, especially SaaS software, so much of it is a bottom up, a land and expand. The selling motion isn't like what I grew up with at SAP 30 years ago, where you sell a $40 million deal and then there's a whole team behind you that you never see the customer again, other than maybe to take them to dinner or golf or whatever. So those days are over. The products need to be different. And if you're on the front line working with your pre-sales team, your customer success team, if you have those teams under your responsibility, then you can help mold the way the product direction is going to go. Now, not to say you're going to build the product. You're not going to tell the engineers what code to use. But I think having the product marketing areas and, and even sometimes product management to drive the product roadmap from the front end of the business, I think is very, very important. Yeah, I like to double click down on that because for 25 years, I've refused to take a head of revenue responsibility role without a minimum of having marketing, true marketing, mm-hmm. sales, and delivery slash customer success. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is this, I do not view sales as the standalone function for customer acquisition. Customer acquisition is a process that includes target buyer definition, engagement, and then the closing process, the delivery. And in today's world of software as a subscription, 30, 40, 50% of your growth revenue or ARR comes from upsells and cross-sells. And if you leave that to different functions, you're going to have lack of alignment and friction that is impacted by the customer life cycle and their experience. What do you think about that, Mark? Yeah. So, I mean, I think when it comes down to it, you know, I love that perspective and you were doing it when it was very much not the trend. You know, the initial point of saying, I want all of this. I'm sure lots of CEOs would look at you and say, well, then you want my role. But it's amazing. I think it is so important to do that in this day, particularly because within a SaaS model, as Paul has put it, you're responsible not only for that number, you're really responsible for setting deals up from the beginning so that they don't churn, so that they are sustainable. You know, all of these things, your CEO and your board is going to come back and they're going to say, Paul, why do we have all this churn? And if you were to turn around and say, I don't know, that's not my job, that's not going to fly really well. So, Paul, bringing it back to you, you know, what's great about being a part of your career and just watching you involved is 
you know, you were the purest of sales reps when you were a sales rep, meaning you focused on what you needed to do. When you became a manager, again, that was your job. You're very focused, which is why you've been so successful. But you found this way to evolve into not only president, CRO, not only all these responsibilities, but also interim CEO roles, which you probably 20 years ago, I don't know, you tell us if you really thought you would ever move to that level. Tell us a little bit about how you learned what you needed to learn and how you build your skill set to be able to own and help impact all these different functions. Yeah, I think the selling function has changed, Mark. And Ray, I can't agree more with your assessment of it from the perspective that it is a whole process. And if you don't know that whole process, then chances are you're not going to be very effective in getting anywhere past maybe a frontline sales rep, right? So the more you get to know finance, I got an MBA in finance, which I never applied or did anything with it. But at least when the you know CFO would try to argue with me about compensation, I could go toe to toe and understand and battle on those grounds. I was forced in the early SAP days, and it is in the book because we just didn't have good resources in America to yeah. provide pre-sales, right? So I had to learn to be a pre-sales rep, if you will, in addition to account rep. So then therefore I knew maybe not at an engineering level, but I could write a couple of lines of ABAP code back in the early 90s. And that gave me a lot of credibility with the development and the technical teams. And then obviously in delivery, if you don't understand the delivery process, whether you're working with partners or screwing it in yourself or whatever. And like you said, Ray, I think 40, 50% of the revenue of companies, especially SaaS companies is coming from you know, upsell, cross-sell, then you need that retention of the three big metrics, right? That you see, you want new business, you want upsell business, and you want retention, right? So you have to own at least aspects of all three of those. I think the one that's maybe nuanced, and I think that's more recent, is the product components, right? I think the sales, the marketing, the customer success, the delivery, the partnerships kind of make sense. But when you go and fight for your ability as a CRO to own a lot around the product direction, because if you, especially if you have a founder that is more of a technical founder, and they may say, oh, I really like to build this, but nobody might buy it, or you might not be able to get the margin on it, or, you know, it's really not going to move the needle financially on the revenue side. I think that collaboration between product marketing, product management, and the CRO is absolutely critical. And if you really look at the role of some of the CROs today, I don't think any of them have any real say on the product direction. Very, very few. And the ones that do are probably the most successful. Well, what was that term? The term that they were calling the U.S. sales reps, the kind of knob turners? Oh, and, yeah. In the early SAP days, you had no respect for salespeople. They called us Klingenputzer, which is basically a polished doorknob. So obviously not a very high level of respect. But, you know, a lot of it was true. I mean, some of the sales reps, and even today, are professional visitors, right? right? And now that you can't visit anybody, you know, that's probably not the profile that you're looking for to build out a SaaS killer sales team going forward. Paul, one of the things I find about this discussion is their stage appropriateness. And what do I mean by that? We did some research in partnership with HubSpot about the concept of revenue operations, and revenue operations is all about the integration of marketing ops, sales ops, mm -hmm. and customer success ops to really align with that customer buyer experience. From a less than $10 million, where you really need to build that initial muscle memory, we have found that having dedicated functional groups works well because that head of sales at one or two million, he or she needs to be a super salesperson, not just a process manager. 
But once we see companies hitting that $10 million to $20 million range, that's when we start to see friction between functions and mm. process breakdowns. Yep. And by the way, what's interesting is once you get to about $100 million and above, that integration and process is running a little bit more smoothly. And maybe you don't need a CRO who's responsible for all three. Maybe you need a COO or a president. What do you think about that frame of it's got to be stage appropriate for this decision? Yeah, I think it's two things. Absolutely right. Stage appropriate is one thing I look at. And then what's the profile of the founder team, right? If the founder team is more sales, marketing operations versus maybe typical founder teams are more technical founders, uh, development type personalities. So I think that also plays into the stage. But I had a conversation with a portfolio company yesterday and they, oh, we need a CRO, we need a CRO. I'm like, no, you don't. You need to get your first 10 million in revenue. And it really doesn't matter who that person is because they may not be the person to go from 10 to 100, mm -hmm. right? And you could call them whatever you want. It doesn't really matter what their business card says, but the reality is they should be solely focused on selling new business at that stage of a company. And then one of the things I've also seen is that companies don't invest in the revenue operations functions until they're in this hyper growth mode. And then it's like, oh my gosh, we got to get sales ops, we got to get marketing ops. So I think, you know, if you're a good individual sales contributor, early stage company, that's probably all you need. You want that person to get you that first, maybe build out the first 10 to 15 sales reps, the first two or three teams. And then, then you can think about what that next stage is. And then maybe you start thinking about, do you bring in more of a CRO type of person where you start to align those functions. But I think a couple of things. One, people are bringing in CRO type folks way too early in these companies. And a lot of these CROs come from larger companies. They're not used to rolling up their sleeves mm -hmm. and prospecting it in the first 10 or 20 deals. And you know then they wind up spending the whole A round and they've done nothing, right? And they've got this really expensive person who hasn't really delivered and is like a fish out of water. You know, so you're so spot on with what is the level of responsibility at the appropriate stage of a company. Early stage, laser focused on getting new business. And by the way, if they throw the stuff over the fence and it's hard to implement, let the implementation people figure it out because you're figuring it out as you go. You get to that 10 to 30, 40 million range, then I think you need to start to bring some of those disciplines back together. And then I agree, once you're at that couple hundred million in revenue and on your way to being a public company, if not already, then I think the CRO title is there and they're going to have sales globally. They may have customer success roll into them, but I think those other functions typically roll into a COO or into another president function. So it really is stage dependent. I think you're absolutely right. And there's no, you know, maybe in the next book, Mark, we'll have that role and exactly what stage they're at. But I think that could be a pretty good research project to see of these companies. And I'll look at it all the time in our stages of our portfolio firms is that they've either overhired for that position if they feel they're going to grow into it great as long as the expectation is that this person has to go get that first 10 million in ARR. You know, and Ray, if you can expand upon that a little bit as well, there's such an importance of finding the right person, as you mentioned, for the right stage of development. And for the next step, meaning, you know, if you bring in that person with deep background at a Cisco or an Oracle and, you know, they come in, they want that CRO role and the mechanisms aren't there yet, they're going to go out there and they're going to do what they do. And that is build process. And they're never going to have the team. 
So Ray, what's your perspective of how do you make sure you get the right person with the right DNA at the right time? Well, I would say, and what I've done is I want to profile someone who has had success in that kind of product market fit to initial repeatability. And Sherry, you have also had responsibility from repeatability to true scalability, kind of from 10 to 20 up to 50 or greater. Now, that's a rare person. The good news is in the last five, 10 years, you can find a lot more of those. But I'm saying, wait until you find someone who's done both. Now, I will tell you that goes against conventional wisdom. You know, I was trained at GE and their information technology group. And I went from being a salesperson to running almost a $500 million P&L. Then I came to Silicon Valley and was in a true startup world. And I was very successful to have companies that went from pre-revenue to 50 up to 100 million. So people say, well, Ray, what are you? Are you a startup guy or are you a scale guy? And I like to say, I'm whatever the company needs at that point in time. And here, talk to my three references where it was one to 10 million. And here's two or three references where it was 20 to 100 million. But I think we as an industry try to pigeonhole people. What do you think about that, Paul? Yeah, I'm thinking of it I'm like, wow, it's interesting because if I look at my profile and they say, well, what are you, Paul? You work for these big companies, right? You ran SAP sales in the 90s. But when I got to SAP, there was nobody here. So it was like, you know, so I was a startup guy. Of course, it was part of a German company, but they were pretty small. You know, Reba was pre-revenue. And I think the numbers are rare, right? So I think for you and I, Ray, where we can go in, roll up our sleeves, get those first 10 million and then scale it to 100. There's unfortunately, there's a supply and demand issue. There's more of them now, but there's so many more companies that need that profile. And that's a tough profile. And I think a lot of people do get pigeonholed that, okay, this person can't scale. Well, how do you know? They never had an opportunity to scale. Maybe if you get them a really good operations leader, they can scale the thing with no problem. And I always say this, the best coach in the world, you know, and I'm not a Patriots fan by any, but you got to say is Bill Belichick, right? He's pretty good. He was an assistant one time. He never got the opportunity to scale or go into the head coaching job. So if you're pigeonholing someone and that's your ideal candidate profile, you're going to not hire them because the supply and demand, Ray, in the market today, I mean, look, even old guys like us are getting calls all the time for those jobs because there's just a supply and demand imbalance. So I think you can't pigeonhole. You got to say, look, this is what we need now. Let's make sure we get that. And you'd be surprised some people grow into those jobs. Look, when I started at SAP, I had no sales management background, really. And then within three or four years, I'm running a multi-billion dollar business with thousands of reps with no training, right? So some people get into that position and they excel. And others, they maybe don't make that adjustment. And then you got to either bring in help. So I always say that the person that gets the, there's an amazing salesperson that gets those first 10 million, 15 million in revenue, you could potentially be a scale person if you bring the right ops infrastructure in, then that combination works. Mark, can I double click on that with Paul? Yes, please. Because one of the things I think our listening audience would really appreciate is you were able to scale and become a manager with no formalized training. What was it about the way you approached the role and opportunity that you were able to make that transition from a smaller entity, frontline sales manager, to truly being a CRO? Were there certain things that you did? 
You know, it was OJT, right? I mean, I think, honestly, Ray, if you're a GE, you're getting training that we probably didn't get in the early days at SAP, right? So it was more of a thrown into the fire and try to learn this as you go. But I think, like, as I mentioned earlier, I learned the product at a fairly detailed level. So that enabled me to work with the technical groups and the other groups that traditionally salespeople didn't have the respect for. I mean, when you go over to Germany and they think you're a pre-sales engineer and you're running the East Coast as a sales manager, that was pretty good. That was a good checkbox to be able to have the credibility with the team to do that. And then I did take some informal management, but what I did, and I thought that that was really key, is I looked at people, not just at SAP, but other senior leaders at different companies, even companies that we had sold to, and I tried to get like mentored by some of these strong leaders. And I was able to have three or four folks in my career that provided that mentorship and leadership and said, hey, look, you better be learning the technical aspects. You better be learning how to deal with people. Oh, you better be able to fire these people when you can't. And so you had to learn a lot of that on the job. But I think I always had a desire to be more than just, you know, a frontline salesperson. And I realized I have to learn these other attributes some of them maybe were inherent. Others you yeah, made a lot of mistakes and figured it out. If you want to become a general manager or a CEO, right? And the ideal thing was, even though I thought I maybe wanted to be a CEO, after a couple of interim gigs, I was like, I don't want that job. Well, <laughs> the reasons why not. But the more you can be a general manager, if you will, that's really, I think, the role of the future CRO is that it has all those other areas of responsibilities and they'd be able to collaborate with development and finance, et cetera. But I think, you know, for the audience now, if you're just in sales, it's okay, but just be a wealth of knowledge, a sponge for anything that you can and find some real mentors that have been here and done it. Folks like Ray and Mark that can really give you that guidance. To, if that is a career goal for you, map it out, right? Because just taking that frontline sales manager job, a lot of folks never go from that role into say an AVP or a VP of the US or a CRO. And I think a lot of it has to do for me, it was, I see a lot of managers want to control everything. As a yeah. sales rep, you have control of everything. You're the CEO of your territory. As a frontline sales manager, you're the CEO of your kind of eight or seven or whatever the number is of reps that you have. Once you start getting into that levels of management and this company scaling, it's a whole different skill set that's required and a lot of folks' personality is just to kind of control. And obviously, the higher up in the organization, the less control you have anyway. So that's where I see the breaking point. You know, are you able to manage by influence and manage folks that maybe don't report to you or trust folks in your organization to do their job? So, Paul, you kind of brought us here as we close up to one of my wheelhouses and something I think is extremely, extremely important. And that is tying back to just making sure you're hiring the right people and leveraging these cognitive and behavioral assessments. And again, watching you do this 20 years ago, you didn't leverage any of those things. And you were making decisions mostly based on your gut, your intuition. And there was nothing wrong with that, especially back then, because there was no other way to do it. But I've watched you evolve along the years and really leverage these tools. And a lot of that comes down to DNA, to intellectual capacity and just interest as well. You were a salesperson who said, I want my MBA in finance, 
because I want to be able to speak with the CFO. I want to be able to sit down with the board and have these discussions. But there are some salespeople that have no interest in finance and would never want to go through that program. So one of the key items that I'd like to kind of close on with here is, again, it does come back to finding the right person with the right capabilities, the right areas that they want to focus on to do the role you need them to do. Closing thoughts on that, Paul? Yeah, not to plug the book, but you know I'm going to do that because I'm a peddler, right? But there's a whole section here on hiring and the profiles, the ideal candidate profiles. By the way, it's so much harder today. If I'm a manager or frontline manager or CRO and I'm trying to hire folks, like I said, it's a supply and demand challenge just because of the market that we have. So that makes it very difficult. So a lot of times you just want to fill that 50 people that you have to hire this month. So it makes it harder. But I think if you look at what we talk about in the book around the types of profiles that you want to target, do they have these certain characteristics that maybe they're born with or maybe they've got? We talk a lot about in the book about EQ, right? Creativity, you know, a lot of soft stuff. And believe me, I did actually invested in companies well before the time, before the Myers-Briggs and all that stuff that was, you know, starting to see the cognitive nature of people. I think there's a lot of value in having these people take those. And there's a lot of them out there. So they're not going to credit one or the other. But if you look at, they'll give you a pretty good idea of the person based on some of those cognitive tests. And if they don't fit some of the profile that you're looking for, not to say you eliminate people just on those tests, but it could be a deciding factor. And I think the more science you can build into it today, you know, you're right. 20, 25 years ago, a lot of it was gut. Sometimes your gut was right, sometimes wrong. You then absorb that data, especially when you were wrong. You never made the mistake again. Now there's a lot more science to what we do. Absolutely. Well, Ray, what pose this down? Well, I want to summarize something Paul said because I think it's so important because it's why or one of the reasons you've been so successful. You talked about your natural curiosity and wanting to be a self-directed learner. You learned mm. about the product so you could be a pre-sales engineer. You learned about finance. The second thing you said, which is really important for our listeners, you sought out mentors who could teach yeah. you about areas that you didn't have that experience in. And by the way, it wasn't just one mentor. As you evolved, you went and got a second and third mentor. So I think those are two really important things for aspiring CROs to think about. And for those CEOs and CFOs thinking about hiring a CRO, and instead of pigeonhole them, find yes. out what they've done to learn and grow, and can they apply that and grow in your organization? So Paul, thank you for that great insight. Mark, as always, thanks for being a great co-host. And to our listeners, if you like the content and guests we have here on Selling the Cloud, it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe to our Selling the Cloud channel and provide a rating and a comment on what we could do even better for our listening audience. Thank you everyone for listening to the Selling the Cloud podcast.